And I, I want us to know when we study a book like Isaiah or any prophecy in the Bible, it is easy for us to be so absorbed in our time that we don't think of the promises that are there and how rapidly they will be realized. Because life goes by in a flash. Uh, I'm 44. I'm likely well half my life, half of my life's over. Maybe, maybe less. Who knows? Nobody knows. But at the most, I mean, I'm not going to live as long as I already have lived. It'll be over that fast. And that will be true for all of us. Some of you are closer than I am. And that is how fast life happens. It just goes over in a, it's over in a flash. And I say this because in reality, we're not looking uh, for a day in the distant, distant, distant future when Jesus comes back. And then and we can't think that far ahead. For us, as soon as we die, we enter eternity. And time that we live in that we feel passing, it doesn't exist in eternity. At least scripture doesn't make it seem that way. So it's probably likely that as soon as we leave this earth, our physical body dies and our soul goes to be with God, it'll be like an immediate, we're in the presence of God in all his glory and and the consummation even might seem right upon us. So it's not something that's that far off for any of us. And maybe Jesus comes back first and it's even quicker. But the longest it would take is not that long before these things are realized that Isaiah speaks of. And so I want us to get a perspective on prophecy and how it is immediate for all who hear it, even those who in Isaiah's day heard this picture of what the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would do. For those who lived and died in that generation, it was upon them that fast. And it will be that way for all of us here also. It's a picture of the Messiah that Isaiah paints that is timeless. It encourages God's people of all time. Now, I want us to also remember that there is an out there full fulfillment of what God promises is pictured in this passage. But that picture will start to see realization even in our lifetime. As soon as Messiah came and started to bring restoration, pieces of the benefits of eternity started to be realized in God's kingdom as it grows. So there is a sense in which the church can be encouraged and gain a certain amount of, uh, you might say, marching orders based on what will happen, what is yet to come, there is still something right now for us to see realized. And we'll see that in this passage as there's a picture of peace painted in a, in a, in a shocking metaphor almost uh, when we read it. This is a book of metaphors and illustrations and analogies. And the one here is probably the most vivid so far of what the Messiah's work will bring in total peace. But that total peace is not just for the future. Some of this can be realized even now. We're looking at Isaiah 11 throughout Advent, and we are at verses 5 through 10. Please follow as I read. It's printed there on your insert. This is God's holy word. It's his infallible and inerrant word. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who 
shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let us bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, there is a longing for peace on earth now. There is a frustration with hate, hostility, and violence among people. You have revealed the reason for this enmity between people, and it stems from enmity with you. Lord Jesus, you began your restoration and renewal of all things when you came. I pray that you will give evidence of your being the Prince of Peace through the sanctification of your people. Call people to yourself by the witness and display of your renewed and restored people. Embolden us by the glorious and certain future that you will bring, Lord Jesus. Make us brave to bring the knowledge of Christ everywhere on the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace on earth. You hear that refrain throughout the Advent season from everyone of every faith, of every stripe. You hear peace on earth. That is somehow held is the most glorious estate of man. You know, there is a famous Christmas uh, program that came out in 1977, and a portion of that circulates every year on video. It's a duet with two very unlikely partners, Bing Crosby and David Bowie. Now, the duet was done in 1977, just five weeks before Bing Crosby's death. Now, Crosby, on the one hand, was the quintessential singer-dancer-entertainer from the 40s, 50s, into the early 60s, really. Bowie was the picture of the crazy rock era of the late 60s and 70s, kind of a shock rocker before there was such a thing labeled. Uh, Started the rock opera idea with a a story told over the series of albums. Uh, He was on the angst side of the Vietnam War that had just come to a close, whereas Crosby came from that World War II generation of patriots, you might say, and you might say there were two different generations, almost they clashed in what they represented, and here they were together in a Christmas special singing a duet. It's actually pretty profound when you think about it historically. Now, interestingly, in the setup for this, David Bowie didn't want to sing a Christmas hymn or a Christmas carol. He said he didn't really like them. Now, he wore a cross during the special, but he himself was not and is not a Christian. Crosby was Roman Catholic and very traditional in his understanding, wanted to do a a Christmas uh, special with all the traditional usual usual songs. But Bowie wouldn't do it. Bowie said, instead, I'll write a song and we'll sing together uh, and we'll, we'll work something out that's unique in that respect. Again, representing the traditional with the new and the contemporary Uh, His philosophies here and the other's philosophies there. And I don't know how deeply they thought about what they were saying, but it becomes more and more profound if you look at this picture. So Bowie wrote his own words, what would be most important for him to express in the special that millions would see. Crosby sang that classic song, Drummer Boy, which is a song about a young boy who doesn't have much, but what he has he brings to worship Christ with. Bowie wrote some songs that were certainly, or some words that were admirable, His words were these, peace on earth, can it be? Years from now, perhaps we'll see. See the day of glory. You see how he thinks glory is associated with peace. See the day of glory. See the day when men of goodwill live in peace, live in peace again. Now, as you can imagine, when I've heard this over the years, I just 
wish I could ask him a few questions about these things. I mean, glory, the highest point of glory for him would be peace on earth, and I think many people think that way. That's when heaven arrives, when everybody gets along. But then he says, see the day, picture the day when men of goodwill live in peace, live in peace again. He doesn't recognize that he's, he's cited the problem that exists. Uh, the lack of goodwill in men intrinsically moves against the possibility of peace. But the most puzzling line that he writes is, live in peace, live in peace again. Again, what is he talking about? There hasn't been a period of peace since the fall of man. He sings this song at the same time as Bing Crosby sings over and over again, drummer boy and this boy worshiping Christ. You know, so many people think that peace on earth, meaning everybody getting along and there being no war, that's the highest plane imaginable for mankind. Now, little did these two singers really know that they demonstrated the order that there should be. They started by singing Drummer Boy, and then Bowie went into his song. The exaltation of Christ is what has to happen first before there can be peace on earth. I'm sure they didn't realize it, but inadvertently they were actually demonstrating what is necessary for there to be real peace. The exaltation of Jesus the knowledge of Jesus covering the earth like the waters cover the seas. That's what is necessary. That's what will come to pass in final consummation so that there will be peace. But what is encouraging to us is that in the meantime, while God works this and builds towards this, there is a peace that comes to people when they are made right with God, when the war that they are fighting with God because they're rebels against God, when they're in darkness, when they're transferred to the kingdom of light by Christ, they are brought into peace with God. And there is the beginning of the possibility of real peace that's widespread once a person is halted from their war against God. It only happens through the Prince of Peace, Christ, in us, the hope of glory. And the beautiful picture of this can be found on earth. And it's very challenging for us. It should be found in the church. It should be found among those who are redeemed. It should be found among those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. That's where we should find a picture of what is yet to come in fullness. The fourth chapter of Isaiah, there is a hint at the coming Messiah. In the seventh chapter of Isaiah, more detail given about the coming Messiah. In the ninth chapter, the titles that are given to Messiah start to really paint an identifying picture. In the the title that probably has the most uh, impact across all other designations for Messiah is that he will be the Prince of Peace. The peace that people generally long for is a ceasing of hostilities between people and the stoppage of war on earth. But there is a far greater need for peace at a base level. You know, you don't have to look far. Any day, I don't care what day it is, just go to your news feed, wherever you get your news, and you will see multiple evidences of how badly we need peace. Just this morning, just did this exercise, as I knew I would ask or say it to you, in Burundi, violence from coordinated attacks on three Burundian army installations killed 87 people. There's an escalating turmoil in Burundi over the disputed third term of a president. 
more than 150 armed men raided the army facilities, and 79 of them were killed. And then this morning, probably the same time we were coming to church, an explosion at a bus stop in Pakistan killed 12 people. Peace on earth. That's often the altruistic plea of many when asked they, what they want for Christmas. It's true. The world needs peace. But it needs a peace greater than just the ceasing of hostilities between people. The ceasing of war on earth can only happen when God brings actual peace. And there must therefore be a peace between God and man before there can be a peace between mankind. Peace is greater than just that. Peace means restoration. It means renewal. Everything is wrong today. Everything is messed up. The fall and the entrance of sin upset the balance of things, and it started at the headwaters of humanity and it has gone on since then. What we see and experience now is such a tumultuous mess because of the chaotic cycle of sin and enmity with God. We need peace beyond our very limited and small vision of peace. Isaiah paints a picture of a Messiah who brings peace and restoration, the kind we really need. Knowing this, knowing that Messiah is bringing this restoration of creation, this peace to creation, that should encourage us. He's doing this work. That should encourage all of us, and it should also embolden us as God's people today with his gospel. Now, let's look at the passage and see this vision that Isaiah has for what Messiah will do. We see that Messiah himself, the righteous one, his presence will bring peace. His being here will bring peace. Verse 5, it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Using language of equipment that he's carrying, the character and the influence of Messiah would result in the very thing that has eluded creation ever since the fall of man, peace. So restoration that Messiah brings, that's equal to bringing peace. The Israelites knew war. They knew violence. It was in their past, and it was in their life during the time of Isaiah's writing as Assyria stood at their doorstep. They wanted a king. They wanted a military prince to save them from the violence that was coming their way. And Isaiah tells them, with righteousness he, the Messiah, will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know, there is a reason that we have the passing of the peace in our liturgy. It's, it comes at a time in the flow of worship where we have been confronted with the awesome otherness of God, We sing of adoring him for who he is. We recognize we are sinners in his presence and we need forgiveness so we confess. And then God reminds us by his word of the gospel which makes us right with him through Christ. And we give praise for that and then we pause. The war with God is over because we are saved. Because we are now redeemed. And so since that war is over, the fundamental war that has to come to an end Now we can start to have peace with each other. And it's meant to be a demonstration of open fellowship with each other because the war with God is over. 
There's no reason to be at war with each other if the ultimate war has been won and it's over, it's finished. In the Prince of Peace, the righteous one, when he comes, he brings that peace at his first coming and he's working it until final consummation when it comes in total and utter glory. Real glory. Glory is not found in man accomplishing something. Glory is in God accomplishing something that is amazing and that is miraculous even. Jesus brings us peace with God, and that allows us peace with each other. You know, creation, when you think of what creation underwent when man fell, a creation, those things that God created that we are placed as stewards over, caretakers of, all of it lost out terribly when man fell. The unwitting victim, you might say, is creation when man fell. But when Messiah did his redemptive work on the cross, it started a chain a chain of renewal, a chain of restoration, which is going on and will reach a final consummation. It starts with allowing for a restored relationship between God and man. The relationship eventually means peace between all mankind as God works it. And finally, the creation will stop its groaning and be renewed. The final fruit or outcome of Messiah's restoration or peace will come. So when Paul writes in Romans 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That final revealing. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, to demonstrate how the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of what the Messiah will do, the outcome of Messiah's coming, to demonstrate how this will be peace, and it will be wide scale, Isaiah paints a most shocking picture by way of a metaphor In this metaphor, we see several facets of how restoration will be brought. Three in particular, I'll point out, in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. Messiah will do this work of restoration and renewal, this bringing of peace. Look at the metaphor, the picture, the analogy. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Imagine that, a wolf who, one of the ultimate predators with the easiest possible prey, and he'll dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Another picture of the same thing. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Not just any old calf, but one fattened up. And a little child shall lead them. A little child will have enough dominion over these beasts to lead them. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Uh, Two animals that eat in very different ways, they're going to graze. That's the picture of the kind of peace that Messiah can bring and will bring. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It seems so unnatural to us to envision such a thing. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. That's a baby still old enough to feed from his mother's or her mother's breast. And the weaned child, just a bit older, a toddler now, shall put his hand in the adder's den, and adder's a viper, another kind of snake. Now, you can see the shocking nature of this metaphor. It would grab hold of anyone who reads it, like it probably has us, as I've been reading in each of the last few weeks, working through these verses. Now, the reason why it's so shocking is we all know the picture of how nature is. As a youngster, without question, one of my favorite programs on television every week to watch, I think it was Sunday afternoon, was the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Now, I watched that show for the same reason many people watch car races. They want to see a wreck. 
I wanted to see animals eat other animals. Come on. Lions taking down wildebeest. The wildebeest always get it. If I could be an animal, it would not be a wildebeest. They never do well. It doesn't matter what animals against them. The wildebeest is always... You don't ever see a documentary on the wildebeest. This is the wildebeest. Look at their life. How they re- And how happy the wildebeest are. It's never like that. Hyenas eating in palace that were still alive when they started eating them. And Merlin Perkins, you know, just kind of just chill, talking about how this bear just grabbed a huge flapping salmon and started eating its guts out. Cheetahs running down antelopes. In those loving chimpanzees, you know, Curious George, fighting to death to decide who the king of the group of monkeys were. And Perkins himself, who led that show and narrated it, he was bitten by a viper himself in St. Louis where he got his start. Maybe that's why he liked accenting the wild kingdom. And it's a wild kingdom. But Messiah's power for peace is so potent that it could even bring peace to the wild kingdom. That's the picture being painted for us. Now, I realize, and I've heard this used before, when people try to paint a picture, uh, the literal picture of the way heaven will be and how animals will get along and so forth. I think this is an overstatement for sure uh, to assume that that's what this passage is trying to to communicate. Uh, Remember, the imagery of Isaiah is pervasive. In the first chapter, Isaiah uses the metaphor of a human body to describe the sickness of Israel. That same chapter also contains the glorious metaphor about our cleansed sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Later in chapter 1, this is just the first chapter, all these analogies. Uh, It describes God refining Israel like a metal worker refines fine metals. In chapter 2, Isaiah describes turning weapons of war into weapons of peace and for use in agriculture. Chapter uh, 4, again, we have introduced the branch, that metaphor for the Messiah. Chapter 5, Isaiah uses the imagery of a vineyard to describe Israel. God had a vineyard on a fertile hill. The whole chapter, it is a metaphor about Israel using, uh, using the plant world to describe. Plants and animals, things they would know and understand. He uses these to give a picture of God's power, God's people, God's dealing with mankind. Chapter 7, the sign of Emmanuel is forecasted. In chapter 8, Isaiah uses the image of a quickly moving and flooding river to describe how Assyria will come into Israel and invade their land. In chapter 9, that great chapter predicting Messiah, the advent of Messiah, uses the metaphor of darkness and light. Wickedness is called something that burns like a fire. Chapter 10 has God using the picture of a rod or a staff as being Assyria in his hands. God further uses the picture of a lumberjack with an axe to describe himself as the lumberjack and Assyria as the axe in his hand as God wields it in judgment. And the last part of chapter 10 returns to a picture of a forest being cut down by an axe. So the beginning of chapter 11 reintroduces the metaphor of the branch and later the shoot of Jesse. All of this to say and set up the fact that Isaiah uses one metaphor after another In this book, we've seen them stack up repeatedly, and they continue throughout the whole book. In a book of physical metaphors describing spiritual things, we should be careful to then suddenly take 
something too literally and say, this is how heaven will be. Just the problem with having a nursing child in the new heavens and the new earth should give us pause enough. It's a picture. It's a radical, over-the-top picture to show us the kind of power Messiah has. The wild kingdom is so wild. Man could imagine subduing each other somehow. Assyria was going to subdue Israel. But the idea of being able to subdue a lion, that's a whole other thing. But Messiah's power is such that he can and will do even this. Messiah brings several things in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 reveal them in particular through this metaphor. First, we see most basically that Jesus, the Messiah, will bring reconciliation and is bringing it now as we read it from our perspective. In verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. That's predator and prey together. That's the kind of transformational work the Messiah will bring. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So old hostilities, they will be quelled. Predator and prey, reconciled. That's what Messiah brings. The ceasing of war between people will necessarily end when Jesus brings this kind of transformation. Not only will there be a stoppage of violence between people, there will be a comfort and a safety with each other's presence. It's not just that the wolf uh, will just ignore the lamb, they'll dwell together. Uh, So predator and prey will no longer just avoid each other for peace, but they'll actually enjoy and have comfort with one another's fellowship. Messiah's work will bring an end to the hostilities between old enemies. Something else that Messiah brings, as revealed by this picture, He brings a renewal of our nature. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Wait a minute, bears don't graze. I mean, they're omnivores, but they don't graze. Well, their nature, God is so powerful that it'll change our nature so that we can have this fellowship and this peace with one another. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That's the most over-the-top picture yet. Imagine a lion eating grass alongside the ox. Hostilities will cease, not because of an outward imposition, but because inwardly will be different. Calvin's the one who brings this metaphor out the most in explaining how it's a picture of what happens when Jesus subdues us, the change of our nature that occurs. The nature of man will change from inherently sinful to inherently righteous. The very nature of mankind will be transformed in order to bring real unity. This is where real peace happens, when our nature is changed. Until man's nature is changed, we can't have unity. And so the temporal picture of this are people who are renewed in Christ. We have capacity to have real peace with each other when God, by his Holy Spirit, regenerates us, places us in union with Jesus, the righteous one, and where righteousness comes, peace can come. And we could see pictures of this among God's people. But it will be realized in fulfillment and total consummation when we're totally renewed. And all the fruit of our renewal in Christ is realized in glory. And that takes a change in nature. Verse 8, we see Messiah, who, by the way, is the second Adam. Remember that. The Messiah is the one who comes as the second Adam to undo what the first Adam messed up. The first Adam brought the curse. The second Adam will remove the curse. And this is pictured in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, a viper's den. 
So there's no enmity between man and animal in this picture. Uh, In particular, no enmity between the snake. Notice that, the use of the snake here. The snake and the person, gone, curse removed. Cobras and adders, aggressive, venomous snakes. No man would ever mess with one of these, let alone a nursing child or a toddler. But now, the removal of the curse means peace. God uses this shocking, over-the-top metaphor to show us the radical change of peace that the Messiah will bring. The prophet paints the picture of the glorified state which surpasses really all possibility of description. And this is what I mean by that. A regular question I get from my children and from others who I talk to, and I think of myself as, what will heaven be like? What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? What will our existence be like on the other side of glory? It's not hard to see the reasonableness and the logic of redemption and our need for it, but it is more difficult for us to wrap our minds around heaven and what it'll be like. And I truly believe that one of the reasons we have so little in the way of clear picture is because we just cannot completely conceive of or take in all that it entails to be rightly related with God in fullness and for his glory. Because we're still, even in our most sanctified state this side of glory, a bit in it for ourselves and for what we'll get out of heaven when heaven isn't about what, it's not about when, it's about who. And it's Christ. It's, it's him. I know it'll be about Christ, and you cannot exhaust that. You cannot come to the end of the happiness and the joy that we will have when it's about Christ. But I don't know the details of it. I don't know how to explain it to you because the Scripture doesn't explain it in a way I can explain it. And I think it's just because it's way, 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 way beyond us. And a picture like this starts to make us realize how radical Messiah's renewing and restoring work is. In verse 9, you have this concluding summary And this is really where the bottom line hits us. Verse 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. No hurt or destruction with Messiah's ministry of peace and restoration. How is this so? Maybe the most important portion of a verse in the whole of chapter 11. Right here, 9b. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why is it that there will be no more hurt or destruction? Why is it that there will be peace and restoration? How can it be? Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everywhere, God will be present in his holiness. Every place on earth, there will be the knowledge of him, and it will be enjoyed to its fullest extent. It says in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place. That, Mr. Bowie, will be glorious. What is the ultimate cause of peace? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we bring Christ we bring a certain level of peace now. Not in the fullness that will eventually be known, but there can be partial experience of heavenly peace wherever the reconciliation of Christ is known. Where is the main place? And this is, this is I, every time I look over this note again, it's amazing to me to think, where is the place 
where peace should be realized this side of final glory. It should be the church. We're so worried about peace on earth, brothers and sisters, but what about peace in the church first? We're so concerned about peace in the Middle East, but how about peace between husband and wife first? We watch debates, we engage debates, battles between political parties and ideologies, different views about immigration, different views about the Second Amendment, different views about health care, different views about this or that candidate, different views about the unborn, uh, arguments, debates, verbal battles, insults. We worry about all these things. But for those of us who name Christ, who have the knowledge of Christ, how about peace between each other first? How about loving one another in the church or among professing believers. Because the knowledge of Christ, if it's real, it will produce peace. And it makes total sense with the will of God expressed by Jesus when he prays in John 17, may my people love each other, have peace with each other, is what he's saying. Because they love each other. And as a result of this, the world will know that God, you sent me, Jesus prays. So before we get so fired up about peace everywhere else, let's start right here. Start with our families, our marriages, our friends, the people sitting in the pew with you or five pews behind you in the early service or Christians you know elsewhere. Knowledge of Christ, actual knowledge of Christ, saving knowledge of Christ will promote peace. A person who is not at peace with other people or is not striving to be a peacemaker concerning especially conflict and confrontation, a person who is not at peace with others may not be at peace with God. That could be the problem, in the church or not. The answer to David Bowie's wish for peace, and a wish that is expressed by many people in many generations, including our own, it's inadvertently apparent in the duet that he did. While Bowie is singing about a hopeful peace between the people, he's not listening to hear what the other guy's saying. Because what the other guy's saying will actually promote the thing he actually wants. He's saying, worship Christ. When we worship Christ, then you can begin to see peace. Peace on earth, he says, can it be? Years from now, perhaps we'll see. See the day of glory, see the day when men of goodwill live in peace, live in peace again. Whereas Crosby says, a newborn king, bring gifts to him. Worship him. And therein, what both of them say, probably completely unknown to them, you can actually see the answer emerge. Because when the world worships Christ, then there will be peace on earth. That is a true day of ultimate glory yet to come. Knowing that Messiah is bringing the total restoration of creation, peace should encourage and embolden God's people today. Join me as I lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, please continue to bring people to peace with you through Christ by the witness of your word through your people. Give us encouragement to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. Help us to spread that knowledge by what we preach, but also help us to demonstrate that knowledge of Jesus by how we live. Help us to practice peace in our marriages. Help us to practice peace in our relationships with family members and friends. Help us to be at peace with each other in the church. 
Help us to be peacemakers in all that we do because of what we have in Christ. I pray this in his name, the Prince of Peace. Amen.